welcome to Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and the genre I cannot get enough of is obviously fantasy. I mean, that's the genre that everybody should need lots and lots of, right? Um, <laughs> Anything to escape. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, um, I'm Kristen, and I'm going to get a lot more <laughs> hyper-specific than that. The genre I can't get enough of right now is any story that focuses on a grizzled older man taking care of a small child. That's very specific. A little bit of the road vibe. Yeah, the road, Logan, the last of us. I guess Arcane. Light of my life. Nah, Arcane's not quite there. Light of my life. There's like an episode of it. (laughs) Yeah, briefly. See, I was gonna say I was gonna get way more specific, also, but not nearly that specific. I'm, I'm just, just I'm Cameron, and I like gothic horror. Very nice. And I am Tara. I also like gothic horror. But when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, is this a trick question? Since this is about genre bending, um, so I was like, if I answered it about like my reading preferences now, I would say thrillers. But if I took into account like my reading preferences across my life, I would say speculative fiction. Nice. Speculative fiction has so much room for that genre bending, too. You can do, like, anything. It's great. Yes. And there's a real draw to escapism, too, right now. Yeah. So. Can't imagine why. <laughs> there sure is. <laughs> we have a wonderful guest, Tara Gedgen, who is the author of The Breathless and No Beauties or Monsters, which just recently came out. Would you like to tell us about your book, Tara? So it just came out, No Beauties or Monsters just came out in December, and it's about one desert town with a lot of disappearances and one teenager who's determined to find her missing friend. So it opens with 17-year-old Riley, who's being forced to move from San Diego to this remote section of California's Mojave Desert to a place called 29 Palms. And Riley doesn't want to move because she's in high school, she doesn't want to leave her friends, but she's also been to the desert before and she doesn't have the best memories. And so she's really reluctant, but she's right to be because when she gets there, strange things start to happen. And she also finds out that an old friend of hers has disappeared on a hiking trip near Joshua Tree National Park. So that sort of leads Riley down this path of discovery and danger and I definitely think of it as like to go back to genre bending like a mix of the tv show Stranger Things and the show Veronica Mars because it has that mystery element but also the speculative layer. I mean I am a sucker for all of those things like scary deserts, searching for a best friend. I love Stranger Things and Veronica Mars both. I was I'm old enough to have watched it as it was coming out. But yes, such a fun premise. I am in the middle of it. I wasn't on deadline, and so I haven't finished it yet, but I've loved all of it so far. It's that so is great. great to hear. We are talking about genre bending because this story is a little bit of a twist up. Do you want to tell us about that? The overall, and I think it's really important too when you're writing any kind of book, but particularly when you're writing sort of a genre bending book to know what your sort of overall category is. And so I would say the overall category is mystery, that murder mystery, um, because people are disappearing and people are dying and you want to know what's happening. But there's definitely that speculative element as well. And I don't want to give any away any spoilers, but um, th- th- that's where the merging is coming. So it's not your straight sort of mystery thriller, right? There's another layer added to it. With genre bending, why do that? What's the point of 
of mixing genres? We have these defined categories, right? And we walk into a bookstore and we see, you know, the romance shelf and we see the sci-fi slash fantasy shelf or we see the horror shelf and they're all in different sections. So you can definitely just pick a book from one of those places. But I think there's sort of this beautiful alchemy that happens when you start to mix those genres and blur the boundaries, right? So we get to go to unexpected places and then we get to take the reader too. So I feel like it opens us up to these like new possibilities and allows us to sort of work from two different or two or more platforms, right? And and then see where, where the story goes. I mean, I think the hope is that you have two audiences that maybe don't know that they could be friends, (laughs) people who like thrillers and then people who also like paranormal stuff. It's like a gateway so that people can like start reading in the other genre. I mean, I think some of the most fun books are people who are willing to bend stuff. I mean, like fantasy heists came from somewhere. And like, I think Brandon Sanderson Bill's Way of Kings as an underdog sports story, but with magic and lots of people dying. Isn't yeah. he? Doesn't uh, is that So the, the the Kaladin arc in Way of Kings is definitely that. The rest of it yeah. not so much. Oh, that, but, that part. Uh, I also like Sanderson's What is a Skyward is also an underdog sports story, but with spaceships instead of balls. <laughs> instead of balls. Sure. <laughs> And I, I mean, I feel like people who successfully manage to mash something up end up with something new and exciting that allows people to like enjoy the parts of a genre they don't read as much while still feeling familiar enough for them to to not feel like they're out of their own reading zone. However, I do feel like there are some difficulties when you do it. What kind of difficulties do you come across when you're starting to mix genres? I guess to go back to the prose, it's also sort of a difficulty. It is a way to challenge yourself as a writer, and you really start to stretch when you're trying to work with more than one genre. So I think it's a great way to say try something new out. If you're known as a romance writer, you want to introduce sci-fi, or you want to start working with sci-fi, why not have a romance story set in a sci-fi setting? And then you can kind of get your toes wet without like completely changing genres but that can be daunting to do that so I would say the con is really knowing where your book's gonna fit on the shelf overall and this goes for any story but you really have to know what it is to be able to pitch it to your agent for example and then your agent has to pitch it to an editor and the editor has to pitch it to a marketing team and if they don't know what you're writing or they can't define it exactly they might have trouble selling it so I think that's that's really the biggest con of writing genre bending novels is that yes you might be reaching a larger audience because you might be able to access these readers who really like as you say like something you know a thriller as well as speculative or whatever but if they're confused or they don't really know what you're pitching, they might not want to pick it up at all. So that's why I was really happy. Like, No Beauties or Monsters, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see the cover, but it's sort of like the, it's this illustration by the artist Jack Hughes of Joshua Tree National Park area, the Mojave Desert. But you can tell immediately that it's not a straight mystery because there's sort of surreal colors in it. And I think you really do need that signpost or you need those signals for your readers to know what they're getting. That was one of the things that stood out to me when I was thinking about this, that it's kind of, it might be a weird way to phrase it, but you almost want to make sure that the wrong reader doesn't pick up your book, right? Because if you've got, if you've got someone who's just like a pure diehard romance fan, and then halfway through your book, everyone gets axe murdered because surprise, it's actually a horror romance. (laughs) What's going to end up happening is your book reviews are going to tank because you're going to get a whole bunch of people who were not here for the (laughs) horror and they're very mad now. 
Yes. And sometimes even when you signal that, you still get those people who are like, wait, I didn't know there was an ax in this, even though like the ax is on the cover or whatever, right? Like, but, but yes, you definitely do need them to know, even if they're surprised by the direction the book goes to, they need to know what sort of genres they're, they're picking up from the start. Actually, when my first book came out, um, YA fantasy was in like full swing. It was this big, huge, like everybody loved YA fantasy. It was like the biggest the genre had ever been. And so they tried to build my book as a YA fantasy and there's no magic and it is sci-fi. It is a dystopia. So people read it and were like, what the heck is this? So that's a danger. It's such a danger. And even when it's not even your fault, right? Like they just. Yeah. The marketing was like, this is selling well. So maybe. (laughs) Let's try it. I just keep thinking of the movie Cowboys and Aliens. That was at least very straightforward about what it was. It's right in the yeah, title. Yeah, exactly. It's a, you can't get confused that it's got cowboys and aliens in it. I think also, like, in the actual writing of a story, Dan Wells talks about this. His first book, um, I Am Not a Serial Killer, is a paranormal, like, serial killer book. It's about hunting down – well, it's about a main character who is a sociopath who is also trying to hunt down a serial killer by identifying his own – things and being like, I wish I could be a serial killer. And so I can see the serial killer thing happening out here, except that there are paranormal elements. And he said, Mm -hmm. just like you guys are all saying, like, it has to be very clear what people are walking into. Otherwise, you'll lose the readers who came for this, the supernatural at the beginning, or you'll lose the readers that came for the serial killer, and then they won't read past where you get to this supernatural part so I was just gonna say on a technical level though like how are you supposed to keep your different genres cohesive how do you make them feel like they're part of the same story I think that's a really good question and I think that it is important to weave them together and the way I think you keep the story cohesive is asking yourself what the driving force is the main driving force of the novel is and making sure that everything's contributing to that for example like the main driving force of no beauties or monsters is like what's happened to riley's friend why did she disappear on this hike and why are other people in the area disappearing as well um and since i sort of classified it as a mystery first those are the things that i need to answer to make sure like that the reader's getting what they expected. So the the glue there is sort of like making sure that each chapter has breadcrumbs leaving, leading us to those answers. And then I think you also have to, you can sort of ask how that overall driving force is feeding into the characters as well. So nothing should be arbitrary, right? I think using imagery, for example, that sort of has both genres there, but throughout sort of layering that throughout the novel also ties things together i feel like something else you can do that would really help you out is make sure you understand what it is about the different genres you're mixing that the people in those respective genres like so you know in 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 fantasy and science fiction oftentimes something those two share is people like you know getting a sense of awe and wonder so you get something like star wars where you have a lightsaber right where at the same time it's this invocation of it's a magic laser sword that hits all those wonder and awe switches in both fantasy and science fiction whereas like conversely like people who really like historical fiction oftentimes something that they really like about it is like the accuracy and the fact that this could have happened even though it's fictional so if you drop magic into it all of a sudden and that's not something people were expecting everyone who is here for the historical fiction is going to be possibly angry with you because you've just wrecked the main thing they were here for well, I mean, but historical fancy, fantasy that manages to interweave or explain something that happened in history, like that's where you win because you're like, look at this weird thing that happened. It really was because of magic. Like that's, I feel like, where 
where the rubber really meets the road there. I think that's really where the signposting comes in, right? To make sure that your book is billed as historical fantasy, because then you get the people who are here for that. Whereas if you get something that's like, you know, an accurate portrayal of the 18th century British Navy for nine tenths of the book, and then at the very end, a kraken comes out of the ocean, you're going to have problems. (laughs) I think what we're trying to say boiled down, and you can correct me if I'm totally wrong, is that you need to understand the primary genre and hit the beats of that kind of a story. So that like if it's a thriller, you're hitting thriller pacing. If it's a romance, people have noticed each other and thought about kissing by this page. You have to hit the classic beats for whatever the primary genre is, right? Absolutely. It's a good way to sum it up. So what are the rules for breaking all these rules that we just talked about? You know, when you have that genre, you do have to make sure that you're hitting the expectations that readers have come to see within that genre. So like if you're setting up a mystery, you need to make sure the answers are sold at the end. So obviously in No Beauties or Monsters, there you get all the answers of where the people have disappeared to by the end of the book. So you can only start to break rules if you've Uh, stuck to the rules of your genre, right? And you've given the readers what you've promised to deliver that promise of the premise. But in a way, like introducing a new genre or intertwining another genre with what you're doing is a way of breaking the rules, right? Because then you're able to look at those beats from a different angle, right? Or layer in sort of this unexpected element to the storyline. I'm trying to think of um, some of my favorite books that count as genre bending and like what they do that makes them so interesting. And the one I was thinking of first is the Chaos Walking series, which is a sci-fi Western and that's very common now. But when it came out and I first came into like came across it, I just remember thinking like I have no idea what this book is and and really being there for the mystery of of what the genre of the book was. So I think there is a class of reader that's sort of there for the novelty of it, not necessarily for, oh, I'm here to see a trope. Sometimes you're just there to like find out what's happening. Like another recent read for me was Piranesi, and I don't think that quite counts as genre bending, but I was confused enough that it felt like it. <laughs> that sort of reminds me of like when we when we're talking about genre bending anyway, like the way that we can approach it, I remember teaching this creative writing class. Well, I used to do that for a while. And one of the exercises we did that all the students really responded to was taking like your favorite romance novel and making it a horror novel or or story, you know, short story, let's say, or, you know, taking a fairy tale and introducing technology, which sounds a lot like Cinder by yeah. Marissa Meyer, but it really lets us open up new possibilities that we wouldn't otherwise be able to even think about, right? And takes us to these new novel places. There was a, I don't know if it was on Twitter or on Tumblr, but there was like a writing exercise going around that was like, combine the last book you read with the last movie that you watched. That's just like a fun exercise for me to come up with like, oh, how would I combine this zombie show with a rom-com? You know, like, I just think that's a good idea to get brainstorming. Get warm pot. You do, and that movie is amazing. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's exactly what people are looking for in books, which is why genre bending is so fun, because nobody wants to read the exact same thing over and over again. I feel like that's where like um, reading fatigue comes from, because you're like, I've read this, I've read this, I've read this, it's the same. But as soon as you introduce new elements, it's the same enough that you're comfortable, but it's different enough that it feels like something totally fresh and new. And so it's a great spot for people who are trying to like to invent something new. Do we have any last things we want to add before we move on to the next portion of the podcast? 
No, I think we've really covered it. And hopefully there are lots of readers out there who, th- who like to read as broadly as we do, right? <laughs> yeah. I hope that everybody who's listening, that you'll drop some of your fun uh, genre mashups in like some of our social media posts. You can tell us what it is that you're working on so we can get excited about it. So we're going to move on to the next portion of our podcast where we critique a submission from one of you lovely listeners. Maybe you're not lovely. Maybe you're a serial killer like in Dan's books. <laughs> but we've probably noticed from your submission. That would be an interesting like mashup. We could have like a serial killer come in during the podcast and murder us for giving them a terrible critique. Um, Pretty sure Stephen King already wrote that. (laughs) That's right. They'd have to hit. It would have to be pretty well like planned because we're all in different (laughs) places. So if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines on our website. We are only doing one more. Actually, our next guest is. Kristen Sicarelli. But she is going to be the last person who's doing it for a while. We will probably open up submissions occasionally, like maybe quarterly or something, and do one. But because of just the way the podcast is going to be structured in the future, we're doing less of them. So if you want a first chapter critique from a really fabulous author, get your chapters to us. So this submission that we just read is about a girl, I think, a character. We didn't actually find out uh, the, who the main character is very much, which we probably will talk about a little bit. But this main character is working at an amusement park. Her family lives there, or their family lives there. I don't know why I assume. You know how you assume that the character is you? So I'm sorry I'm dropping in my own pronouns there. It's a it's a her. The log line has a she. The, the theme park is in trouble, and if the theme park goes under, then their family is going to be without a job. So what did we like about this submission? So I think my absolute favorite element was the setting of magic land we've got this sort of derelict theme park and uh right next door to a trailer park at where our main character which i'm looking off at the log line that we were given so our main character is esther so i just love that magic land seems so rich in terms of all these specific places that she named like the caterpillar roller coaster the teacup tilt-a-whirl the witch cauldron ferris Will in the Haunted Forest. And I love that Esther lives in a place called the Backyard, right? The Backyarders. So I just like this really specific language that she's using to show us what the Floridian setting looks like. We've got references to like an orange grove and things like that. It just feels really hot and sort of lush and and whimsical as well. This is such a tiny thing, but I even love that Magic Land is spelled with a K instead of a C. Like it just totally gives the vibe (laughs) that this place is like defunct and I don't know I really I loved it it's that's a tiny detail but it's huge um speaking of setting details there's a really long meaty paragraph where we get a description of the park and it could have very easily been an info dump but since it's kind of wrapped around this description of this road that our main character has to paint the entire thing of it didn't feel like an info dump to me so I thought and I liked a lot of the details particularly the uh, ancient albino alligator I liked that too I also think there's some great characterization of the the guy who is making her work he has like this interesting accent that's in the text is it an accent it's not and um, he has a cigar that he like flicks ash onto her bare foot it's gross and there's just some fun characterization there I also like the beginning of stakes being Mm -hmm. set up um, if the park fails and we're in trouble. I just really like that we got the stakes up front because, um, and we got it in like a specific way as well. Like, you know, in the character's memory, we saw the mom counting cash from the cash stash jar, right? So it just felt really specific with the the words that she was using. But like, there's this moment where she's looking at her mom and, and sees the worry on her face or whatever. So I felt like um, I was kind of hit by, by the stakes and 
felt myself cheering right away for Esther, right? Mm -hmm. Because we get that sort of spelled out for us. Like there's a lot on the line here. And I think Caitlin and I have slightly different reactions to the main character, but both of us love her characterization. I, I, there's a really great moment where Mr. Biggs offers to, he gives her some money and it's like, go get yourself an ice cream. And the main character (laughs) is like, yeah, or I could slip it into my mom's cash jar and like she'd have extra money. And then there's this moment where she's like, wait, I hate what I'm doing. I hate where I am. I'm going to keep that money for myself. And I just thought that was a really cool choice. And it makes good promises about about this character. I actually agree with you. I feel like the characterization is pretty consistent, especially because if there's so much on the line, she's doing a lot of sitting on the grass, just hanging out. It seems like Well, maybe that's not the case. Um, So maybe we are disagreeing about Mm -hmm. that. I feel like pretty consistently through the beginning of this submission, we have. I thought it was really interesting, an interesting choice to make. And it doesn't fall in line with like a tropey, like, I'm going to fix everything for my mom. Like, it didn't seem like everything else I've ever read about a failing. Uh, have, have you read lots of things about family theme parks? <laughs> I've read lots of things about child stepping in for yeah. parents who can't quite take it, you know. Yeah, totally. You know. And so it was interesting to see her acknowledging how difficult it was and acting like an actual, I want to say teen, I'm not quite sure what age group we're headed toward here. I don't wasn't sure if it was upper middle grade or lower YA. But it was interesting to see her acting like an actual person who was that age and not necessarily like seeing the problem, but not feeling like it's necessarily her responsibility to fix it or to like see that she could fix it. But also being like, I also want ice cream and this is hard. So, yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of it was great. It was great to see that tender moment and then have her flip it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to things that could need a second look. We do try to keep things non-prescriptive, though we fail mightily quite frequently on that front. So what are some things that we feel like might need a second look? Well, I think it was funny that you guys really liked Mr. Big's voice. And I think this is where listening to critiques are interesting, right? Because Mr. Big's voice made me wonder what the time period was. So I wasn't sure if he was just older or if, um, you know, if this was actually set back in like the 50s or the 70s or something so so I think that's just sort of foregrounding setting a little more and letting us know like is this today is this a a contemporary story and and then maybe considering like pairing back potentially on some of those sort of um kind of dated ways of talking which do give them a lot of personality which I loved and I loved the cigar right especially since it kind Mm -hmm. of worked into the character and we saw her interacting with him and being disgusted by it or whatever but um (laughs) but I do think I would his way of talking did make me wonder what the time period was for the for the story. Yeah, I felt I felt similarly unmoored chronologically speaking. I also was I was thinking about like I wish I knew whether or not, you know, child labor laws were being violated. <laughs> and the, it, with what was going on. Yeah, I'm not sure how old um, this character. The logline says 16, she's allowed to work. <laughs> See, cuz she read to me as much younger, like 8. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say eight, but... Okay. Well, I'm terrible with ages, so actually don't listen to me on that. <laughs> so I left the logline in, but usually I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so we would have just gone in cold, which is how a lot of readers go in. And at the beginning of this story, I did not know if... I didn't know the character's name, uh, gender, uh, time period. And I, I feel like that was very difficult to read. Did you guys feel that way yeah. at all? I mean, we've already got one time yeah. period. We've got... 
I, I would agree in that when I was reading, I felt like her voice sounded younger than 16. I read the log line and promptly forgot the detail of her age. And so when I was reading, I was like, oh, she's like, <laughs> she's like 13 or 14. And so mm-hmm. I, I do agree that there's something about her voice that sounds young. I was going to say, I thought the same thing. Just maybe, I mean, I was thinking, I, I wasn't thinking eight, but I was thinking more like I do, I 14 or, <laughs> you know, a sort of. Yeah. I think for me, I was missing any flags of, I didn't see any teenager specific angst, right? So she's worried about her parents, her family mm-hmm. situation, and she's worried about, and her other concern is that it's hot and she doesn't like painting the road. What I'm missing is like friends, some some kind of social details, some kind of a resenting that she has to spend her time doing this while her friends, because I'm just assuming her friends don't all also paint sidewalks on their free time or whatever right and even adding those details is a great way to show that contrast that she's already set up so it's already sort of inherent in the in the text which actually i feel like my other thing that might need a second look is i feel like we're kind of sparse on story moving forward in this chapter there are a lot of interactions with mr biggs where i'm like the first one i knew exactly who he was but then we kept talking to him for like two Mm -hmm. pages And then, I mean, she spends a lot of time painting and then sitting on the ground, and then we have a flashback, but then nothing else happened. It just felt very like, I'm teasing you instead of actually starting the story. So a first chapter, especially, I mean, like, especially a first chapter has to, like, grab your audience and make them keep reading. And so I just, like, I saw the conflict starting, but I wasn't like, oh, what's going to happen next? I was just kind of like, well, she talked to that guy and got ash on her foot. That stinks. Yeah, I mean, it's only four pages long, but I agree. I mean, I think what is really good here is that we have the stakes, we see the setting, but maybe I think what you're trying to point out is that we're sort of lacking that kind of not cliffhanger, but like extra push at the at toward the end of the four pages that we got leading us to the next step in this character's journey, right? So it sort of ends at the in the scene because Mr. Biggs leaves, but we don't kind of know what what's the next step. What what is this sort of character worried about accomplishing next? I agree um, with everything Tara's saying. I think part of that also goes into like the age thing. There's no looking forward besides there's a problem. It also goes into making her feel younger. Mm-hmm. So I had one other thought, and you guys can totally argue with me about this. This is me being super over analytical because I write books, and so when I read stuff my brain goes crazy so when she introduced the conflict of living in the backyard she's living on the theme park grounds and um, if it goes under that it will be terrible for her family and that Mr. Biggs doesn't really care that much what happens even though this is his investment property and while I could understand there being reasoning for that there wasn't any on the page and so me as a reader I was like this doesn't make sense this doesn't make sense like why would it matter to them when they can't go get a job somewhere else I suppose there's like problems with having a mobile home on the property when you don't own the land you live on and you can't actually move a mobile home. So there's a conflict, but it's not actually introduced that way. But and it could be that they've worked there for generations and can't. But none of the justification is there for why they are so worried about the theme park going under when it's Mr. Biggs who would actually have problems with it because it's his investment property and his business. What what did you guys think about that? I did not have the same issue, but I am a very patient reader, and so I didn't expect to get an answer in four pages. Sure. For me, it goes back to the age thing. If she's eight, I'm okay that she didn't think about any of those things. If she's 16, like, I'm wondering, like, I, I would expect, like, not a small amount of resentment towards Biggs if he's 
if if this place is burning down and he just doesn't care, like I I would think a team. Well, but he is repainting. That's a it. terrible. <laughs> Who's going to go to an amusement park because they painted one of their roads yellow? That's not. I'm just saying, if Six Flags put a little bit of work into some of their paint jobs, it would be a more fun amusement. <laughs> but you're park. <laughs> not you're not going to attend because they painted one of their roads yellow. The point being, I feel like. A teenager would be have some resentment here towards this fat cat who doesn't care that their livelihood is burning down. I guess it depends on the teen, right? What did you think, Tara? I was I was thinking of what I read, and I mean, I kind of had a similar Biggs moment when he. I loved that he gave her money for ice cream, but he like throws a few dollars at her, which I I wondered if there is any of that resentment. We could see it like it wasn't even enough for. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cone you know or something like that where we we get like a little bit of extra there but but I think that what I'm hearing is that maybe just a little more needs to be on the page depending on upon her age like Mm -hmm. a few more details might need to be solidified and and put into place because I was also curious about the land thing and I, I made some assumptions as to why they would be in trouble if this place went under but I don't think it was actually spelled out for us on the page. So yeah, yeah. until the writer does that, I guess it's hard to know unless they've justified exactly why these stakes are there. Which, I mean, I don't feel like that has to happen immediately in the first chapter. I just want to, as a reader, believe that the author is going to do it so that there's a promise of more. Like, I'm totally fine not knowing everything right at the very beginning as long as the author is lampshading it. They're saying, there's more. I'm just not going to say it right now because that would involve info dumping, you know? Like, if I can see the little hints, then yeah, I'm here for it. But it just seemed like a very, like, a, a, a it was summed up, here's our problem, but the problem didn't make sense to me. <laughs> okay, well... Thank you so much for submitting. I loved reading this. I especially loved like the atmosphere like we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier and there's some great characterization. I'm so interested to see where this character goes like because I loved the beginning and the way that it's set up. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great chatting about this. Um, our next next guest, as I said before, will be Kristen Sicarelli. The author of The Last Nemsara, <laughs> The Caged Queen, The Skyweaver, and forthcoming Edgewood. If you would like a first chapter critique from Kristen, get us your work by February 16th. Now, we've mentioned a few times that we're changing formats a little bit, and that change is going to look like this. We are only going to be podcasting once a month in the near future. We're actually skipping February to kind of get ready for stuff. There will be one bonus episode in February, and that's it. Kristen Sicarelli is coming on the show really early in March. She's going to do a first chapter critique. After that, we're going to just be doing the one episode featuring one author that we're really excited about their new book coming out. We're going to just use the whole time to talk about craft with whoever comes on the show. We're also going to be producing a special edition book to go with the authors who come on the show. So if you are interested in getting one of those cool books, please subscribe to our newsletter. I'm going to be sending out some information about that in the next little bit. And we're super excited to be doing this. If you follow me on Instagram, you know I've been making special editions over the last little bit and decided it was fun. So this is what we are going to be doing for the next I mean, unless it's terrible, and then we'll just switch again. So at least for three months, this is what we're going to be doing. We will still be bringing you dodgy writing advice. We'll probably still have periodic other um, guests, like agents and editors and stuff, to come on when we feel like it. And those will be extra episodes. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in February slash March. If there are any authors or upcoming books that you are excited about, and would like to see a special edition from them, or you would like to hear from them specifically, let us know. 
FM。